everybody. Welcome back to Stars Like Us. I am your host, Aliza Kelly, and I am so excited to be connecting with Becca Ray Holloway, who is the sweet feminist. Um, it's so nice to talk to you. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here today. In full transparency, everybody, this is actually our second go at this podcast because, uh, you know, it's in Corona times. Technology is... Uh, you know, we're all we're all learning what the strengths and weaknesses are. So unfortunately, we had this fabulous conversation a few days ago, and it's all lost. Um, but <laughs> listeners will know that there are no coincidences. And the conditions of us now reconnecting here today uh, are exactly as they need to be. So we're going to be bringing you an entirely different conversation than the first one. Round two, <laughs> volume two. I think it's going to be better. I, I think, think so too. But um, we do have to reintroduce you since nobody has had heard originally your intro. So <laughs> if you wouldn't mind telling <laughs> us a little bit about who you are and what you do, um, and that way we can all start to enjoy what will soon be a ton of cake puns from my end. Yes. <laughs> Yep. So I am a self-taught baker um, and recipe writer, um, and I run an Instagram account called The Sweet Feminist, um, where I mix baked goods with feminism. Um, and I grew up watching my grandma bake, um, and so that's sort of where I got my start in the baking world, um, because there was always something homemade and sweet at her house. Um, and then as a teenager, um, I started, you know, baking cakes from boxed mixes, and then eventually um, I got confident enough to start trying things out for myself and I love feeding people um one of my greatest joys is watching um people eat something delicious that I made for them so yeah that's a little bit about who I am two-part question what was the first thing that you wrote on a baked item and then what was the first thing you wrote on a baked item that sort of catalyzed this this work that you're creating now yeah so I think the very first thing that I wrote on a baked item um was Happy birthday to yes, somebody. Yes, that is what but I hoped I have, it was going to be. I fucking love a I've happy birthday I've lost the knowledge of, of whose birthday it was. Um, probably somebody in my family. So the Sweet Feminist got started um, because I I live in Washington, D.C., um, and I was here post-2016 election. Um, and like a lot of people, I had a lot of um, frustration and anger and sadness um, that I wanted to channel into something creative. So I, I sat down and thought about, okay, what can I use? Um, and I realized that I made a lot of cakes um, already um, because I was a food blogger um, at that time. And so I decided to just start writing messages on those cakes. Um, and in the beginning, it was really, you know, for, just for me as a cathartic exercise. Um, but then it sort of, you know, grew into this thing that was much bigger than I ever anticipated because it um, turns out that putting um, these messages on cakes resonated with a lot of people, which I didn't expect, but, you know, it was really exciting. So we, um, in, in our, in the Lost podcast, we <laughs> talked a little bit about um, sort of the role of crafts and baking as it relates to women and women art. In art history, uh, when I was studying that in college, I was the I would say actually one of like the most transformative courses that I took one of those like classic college like wow that blew my mind and changed my trajectory kind of journey was my women in art class and the professor um Allison Kettering did such an amazing job problematizing the class which is that when she, you know in their first day she said 
like this class shouldn't exist. You know, why do we have to carve out a course specifically to talk about women in art? Why isn't this just part of the rhetoric as is? Um, but it wasn't. You know, when you take art history classes, it's surprising if you even learn about a female artist in relation to one in relation to a movement in relation to high art. It's like a rarity to do that. So the fact that we had to separately sort of carve out an entire course just to focus on the work that women created was in and of itself problematic. So in that course, um, some of the things that we talked about were, you know, the fact that crafts and baked items and there were these sort of like domestic quote-unquote like practices that were really the only art that was attributed to women but was never ever deemed in the high art canon it was not put on the same level of expertise or professionalism as the work that men would have access to you know like making marbles and painting penises and shit (laughs) i mean obviously uh gross generalization but really not so much i mean like that's that's who had access to the commissions that's who had access to the work whereas the work of women was much more within the home space and despite all of the uh technical proficiencies that needed to go into it it was just not considered as rigorous and then in the 70s like we have women like judy chicago who did who created this amazing installation called The Dinner Party. I'm pretty sure it's still at the Brooklyn Museum. I'm not 100% sure. But it's this very uh, powerful and challenging piece that basically holds, you know, sets a, a seat at the table for all of these amazing female artists. Um, and it's created using traditional women's crafts like ceramics. Um, and obviously it alludes to food, which is another one of those like women things. Um, but it's it's a table filled with vaginas, which is also for a lot of people challenging in and of itself because the vagina is, a, you know, we don't have as much vaginal imagery as we do phallic imagery. So we're not as comfortable with it. Um, so with all that in mind, when I first saw your work, that really is what I was I was sort of flooded with those memories of learning about that and feeling that sort of amazing conflict between um, that that juxtaposition, I suppose, of taking something that is supposed to that has been sort of so um, become so diminutive within art history and making it something that is so powerful and is so challenging and really questioning our understanding of how we can even use the baking process in the first place. You know, is it just to please our husbands and satisfy our cranky children? No, it also can be used as a political statement. And I think that speaking to that trajectory is just, it was so refreshing and it's so exciting and it's so inspiring what you're doing. I think it really cracks open a lot of, um, Unfortunately, like those those doors that have con- started to shut over the years of talking, thinking about, I don't know, how we can make a statement. That's my yeah. long-winded way of saying very cool shit you're doing. But then <laughs> also you. I'm curious about how, how, what, how that sort of fits into your process as well, if it does. Yeah. So I've been, you know, very insistent that my cakes are art um, and that cake absolutely can be used um, – as art as a legitimate medium for art um and 
this is kind of funny, but when I was um, setting up the Instagram page, when I transitioned to a business page, it makes you choose a category for what you are. Um, and I was um, having trouble choosing, you know, am I a public figure? I mean, not really. Um, you know what? I'm going to choose artist. Um, so that's like the first time that I claimed it as art. Um, but I actually, I've had um, cakes exhibited in a couple of shows. Oh, cool. Um, and that was really fun for me. Um, there was one at the Tang Teaching Museum. Um, and it was a, sh- a sh- group show um, about sugar as a concept. Um, and so I, you know, created a shelf-stable preserved cake um, and it was exhibited in that show. Um, so, yeah, I just I I strongly believe that, you know, whatever medium you want to use is legitimate. Um, and that is true for um, feminists making art as well. Right. And there's so much symbolism. I mean, it's such a deeply loaded um, canvas and then the words that you put on the canvas. Um, yeah. Can we, can we talk a little bit about, um, how it has evolved over the, since you began the process and what types of, I guess what you've learned, um, both good and bad by sharing this work publicly on Instagram? Yeah. So when I started this project, it was, um, it was me putting pretty innocuous phrases on cakes, feminist as fuck, or, you know, don't call me baby, um, things like that. Um, and then as I got more, uh, confident with what I was doing, um, I started putting more, uh, challenging messages on cakes, um, or, um, messages that had more to do with my own personal experience. Like I talk about, um, my abortion experience a lot, um, now. Um, so it's, it's evolved for sure from the original idea. Um, I guess it's expanded, um, mm-hmm. um, as I've gotten more confident and comfortable, um, with what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. If you were to write something that has you're very personally connected to and you're going to get comments on it or you're going to get messages, what is the result of that on you emotionally, artistically? Um, does that make you want to push the boundaries more? Does that make you feel combative or like you want to retreat? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's definitely challenging um, to put yourself out there um, and your personal experiences out into the internet world where you don't know like what kinds of responses you're going to get. Um, and, you know, existing as a woman in the public sphere, particularly on the internet, um, can be really scary. Um, and I do deal with a lot of, um, people trolling me and sending me, you know, nasty messages and, um, that, that's been difficult for me. Um, but I've, you know, created strategies to, um, distance myself from that, um, and not, uh, try not to internalize it. Um, but I also think it's important for me to talk about my own personal experiences. I, I try to do a mix of, you know, drawing from my own personal experiences and also uh, discussing topics that don't directly apply to me but are important to discuss. But when I'm talking about my own personal experience, I think of it as, um, like, when when I had my abortion, I lived in rural Iowa and I didn't know anybody else that had ever had an abortion. No one had ever talked to me about it. Um, I just wasn't uh, familiar with other people's stories. Um, and so now I see part of what I'm doing is um, making people feel less alone, sort of having these conversations in public. Um, so people don't have to say, you know what, I've never heard somebody's abortion story before. Mm-hmm. How would you describe being a feminist? I mean, I know that that's a tall load of a question, but I, I do, I, I feel like maybe I get this a little bit 
less and less as time goes on. But I know that there was a time when uh, women were, uh, I'm specifically mentioning women because I was always particularly shocked by it, where we would be like, I'm not a feminist. I think that equality is, like men and women are equal. Yeah. Um, and it w- I would have to like sort of uh, control my frustration with that as a concept. I've gotten better at it, and people also say that a lot less. So in a combination of things, it's been easier for me to manage that conversation. But what would you say, how would you describe being a feminist? Yeah, so, I mean, I I grew up in a context where um, feminism was a positive thing, um, like where the women around me claimed that as something, as part of their identity in a positive way. So I guess I think of feminism as, you know, the basic idea is it's a movement and sexist oppression, but um, my view of feminism sort of expands on this um, to include, um, you know, things we normally think of as associated with feminism, like um, reproductive justice, but also things like uh, prison abolition and climate justice and um, how do these things connect with each other. So I think that feminism needs to be present in all of these conversations rather than boxed into a narrow scope. So, you know, you have to talk about how sexist oppression is related to um, and reinforces other systems of oppression, um, like white supremacy and um, classism and other things like that. Yes, absolutely. So how, if you were to try to unpack that, how would you say that um, feminism and the concepts surrounding it do feed into these larger scale oppressions? I, I just think that you can't move any of these things forward without seeing how they connect with other things. Yes. I guess is how I would answer that. Yeah, I I agree. I, I mean, that's very much in the spirit of astrology. You know, everything is connected. There is no one act that exists within a silo. Um, I Many, many, many episodes ago on this podcast, we spoke with uh, Sarah Lyons, who is an amazing witch and activist, and she... Uh, shared some thoughts that really changed my my understanding of sort of the way that the systems, I guess systems with a capital S, work. <laughs> and really in, in talking about the way that sort of hyper-capitalism works as emphasizing this machine and everything when it's, when it's treated as a machine has to have function and purpose and everything becomes sort of a mechanical part of of this like money making just churning shit out feedback loop so we give value we ascribe value to people to rights to health to our bodies to our age to our um physical abilities and then if things do not yield, if, they're, if they are not fruitful in this machine, then we do not give them credit. Um, we, are not, we devalue anything that we see as unworthy of our uh, – or, you know, it, that would not generate profit, which also means that we throw people out when they are no longer profitable, which includes like elderly people or people with disabilities and women when they are no longer able to reproduce. And we sort of reduce them to just what their machine functions are. And that concept of treating the world and approaching it through the lens of a machine is 
obviously, you know, uh, a deeply sexist and patriarchal, uh, restrictive way of, of allowing there to be motion and value to things, but is directly linked, of course, to, you know, uh, issues relating to misogyny and sexism and racism and ageism and classism and environmentalism, you know, seeing the earth as a place that we just can exploit and just has monetary value as opposed to this organic, fluid, cyclical process, you know, this, this cycle that exists in and of itself that sometimes is sleeping, you know, because it's winter and sometimes things shut down. Creating um, sort of these synthetic systems in order to keep everything churning constantly is, I would say, one of the bigger threads that links all of the systems of oppression. Um, and there's so many different ways that that could be accessed, but it is impossible to, you know, once you get in there, you see that everything is part of that same problem. Yep, that's absolutely right. Have you seen any action taken as a result of the work that you've done or this I guess micro or macro yeah so um people have started making their own cakes um in the style of this week feminist so people tag me in those you know probably most days somebody makes a cake about some issue and tags me in it um which is you know amazing um I love to see those um because uh it, it's just incredible to see you know what's important to other people um and how they're using cake as a medium um to talk about that with cake as a medium is so good (laughs) (laughs) yes as a medium to you know make this cake and then hopefully discuss that issue with whoever they're eating the cake with So so eating it is important i don't know i mean i go back and forth about this i think it's a medium you don't really need to think about what flavor it is it's not that's a bonus um i go back and forth um but i yeah, I, I think the conversation um, aspect of it, um, whether that happens over the internet or in real life, is um, the most important part about it. Do you know what the history of cakes are? Like, when did messages start appearing on cakes? You know what? I don't know, um, but I'd be curious to see. Um, I've been trying to think about, like, what's, like, the earliest version of a cake um, being written on that I've seen. Um, and I think I've, I've seen them in, you know, cookbooks from like the fifties. Um, but I don't know, um, when that became like, so culturally ubiquitous, Mm -hmm. you know, people really love cakes. Um, and so I think part of why my content works is because every, pretty much everyone loves cake in some form. Um, and so it makes the messages that I'm putting on these cakes sort of more palatable to people, even if, the ideas um, and concepts are challenging. Um, they might be more willing to engage with it if it's presented on a cake. Or are you nervous about somebody like just like straight up ripping off your idea? I mean, I I really I think that writing whatever you want in the cake um, is accessible to everybody, and that's part of what I'm talking about. Is that like anybody can do this in their house? Yeah, I mean, nobody wants their idea directly lifted and stolen from them and presented <laughs> in the same way. Um, nobody wants that. But I do really enjoy seeing other people uh, using cakes um, in this way and pies and cookies and, you know, other stuff as well. Yeah, it's – I mean, obviously, as we know, there's um, there's so much to be said for artists who end up getting their work 
taken and sort of mass produced by larger companies. Um, I had, and I unfortunately don't recall the name of the original artist here, but I'm going to try to find it and I'm going to put it in the store in the show notes if I can. But I a few months ago I saw that there was an artist who is actually an artist with disabilities and she creates these incredible installation like food-based installations and she had a contract with Louis Vuitton for one of their oh I I heard about yeah with for I I think it was like one of their fashion week events and they pulled out the con they you know they did not pursue the contract even though it was already established they backed out of it and then they basically just created her work without her name attached to it um without attributing it to an artist and it is so heartbreaking when things like that happen you obviously see artists so frequently whose uh designs appear on like h&m clothes and zara clothes and it you know it's wonderful that we actually now have platforms that we can call attention to these things on like we can show their receipts um in the past we would not have been able to but even still, it's disappointing and, and heartbreaking to think that here are the artists who are the creatives who are coming up with these ideas and then they're being – I mean, in your case, it would also be like the sheer irony of like the the systems themselves taking the work from you and then trying to make it digestible in their terms. Yeah. And I'm sure it's going to fucking happen though because <laughs> that's what does happen. Yeah. How do you yeah. like protect your IP? So – I I don't know. I mean, I I don't put a watermark on my images. Um, I I want them to be, you know, shared. Uh, but I do, you know, I want people to, you know, credit me if they're reposting. Uh, but I think I think my cakes are pretty distinctive. Like I think my handwriting is relatively distinctive now. If um, if people have seen my work before, they would probably be able to recognize it. Um, and if you, you know, if you see a sassy cake floating on the internet, <laughs> it's probably one of mine. I think I just, um, try to make my work distinctive, um, so it can be traced back to yes, me. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm a Capricorn rising. So me, I get so fucking <laughs> litigious about things sometimes. <laughs> I'm a Sagittarius rising. Oh, you, do you know what your I moon don't know is? What that means. Yes, it's, I'm a Gemini moon, Sagittarius rising. So you're a Taurus sun. Yeah. Um, Sagittarius rising, Gemini moon. Yep. So your sun is probably in your sixth house. Is that right? I would imagine it is. So your, uh, your, you have your, your moon is probably in your seventh. Your sun is probably in your sixth. But either way, if with the Sagittarius rising, they're sitting on the other end of your chart. So even without having your chart pulled up in front of me, some an interesting uh, astrological wisdom I can share with you and with listeners is that that's an interesting configuration because when we have our planets on the right-hand side of our chart, which would be in the Western Hemisphere, especially if they're like the sun or the moon planet, which are so personal, the sun is our ego and identity and the moon is our emotions – the second the the right hand side of the chart the western hemisphere shows us how we how we want to be perceived by other people 
So when we have planets that are sort of occupying near that descendant line space, which is that horizon line, um, it shows us that there's a lot of significance for the individual, in your case, you, on not just being who you are, but being sort of activated by the way that others see who you are. So the importance and the significance of external feedback is really important. And that's not to qualify it as good or bad. It can be both good and bad. You know, it it allows for a lot of self-awareness, but it also allows for a lot of um, discomfort in sort of trying in identifying yourself without having supportive people uh, sort of rooting for you. You know, if you feel like people don't understand you or if you feel like people are misinterpreting you or or if you feel like you are needing to cater to others of what you they think you want to be then that can be a real conflict and that could create a lot of tension internally where it's like oh my god am I being true to myself or am I just appeasing the situation am I who who am I without other people who am I without sort of being received externally um I always like to say that tension in a chart is amazing for me as an astrologer because it usually means someone is going to be more sensitive, more open-minded, and more critical of themselves. And criticality is where we start. We can do some really cool work. But the downside is is that that criticality can also be sort of weaponized against yourself and make one feel really uncomfortable. Someone who has no internal tension is going to feel a lot happier on the inside, but everyone else is going to go, they're going to make everyone else crazy. Whereas someone who has a lot of internal tension is going to probably be a very, a much easier person to get along with, but makes himself go crazy internally. Interesting. So the role of others influencing you is important with those configurations which also makes sense to me why it's like in order for you to as an artist sort of like tap into this to this work and this project it does require the platform in order to do it and then there is that sort of like um you know there's there's the emotional roller coaster of feeling supported by your community and then also feeling like betrayed by your community depending on it and trying to maintain your consistency and sort of like tune out the noise is it is obviously what the the goal is but it's also really hard because with so much external stimuli it's you know it's like do I go in this direction do I go in that direction do I pull back what I'm saying do I do more of what I'm saying that definitely makes sense yeah, I I think that it's amazing when people can just sort of barrel through things without caring about other uh, way it affects other people. Obviously, too much of that, and you get like a full on sociopath. But <laughs> <laughs> it's it is a, it's a, it's a gentle uh, it's a gentle balance to try to strike. That makes sense. So, in terms of um, the ways that you, I, I know that you were doing workshops pre COVID. Um, and now you are doing IG lives. So can you tell us about those workshops and what you're doing on live? Yeah. So pre COVID, um, I started doing these in-person workshops, um, mostly cookie decorating. Um, but I also did one cake decorating workshop. Um, and there's so much Did we make the cakes as well? I made the cakes. Um, just to, you You made all the cakes. Yes. 
I made oh 15 gosh. cakes. <laughs> How long does I, it take you to make a cake? Um, when I made 15, I think it took me about six hours. Oh, that um, seems very efficient. But I'm, you know, I'm like in my home kitchen, so it would be faster, like in a, um, a commercial kitchen. Um, but me just being at home making 15 cakes, um, was challenging. Um, and I will streamline the process moving forward. I will freeze the cakes way in advance. Um, I learned from that for sure. Um, but no participants just, um, like frosted and filled and decorated their cakes. Um, so didn't have to worry about the baking. What is, what is filling a cake? It's like when you put frosting between the layers. Um, got it. Yeah. So they just made like, like assembling it. Yeah. Little six inch cakes is what they did. Um, and it was so much fun, um, to meet people in real life. Um, and part of the exercise is that, um, you spend, um, a few minutes stream of conscious brainstorming, you know, what's important to you? What do I want to talk about today? What do I wish more people understood? Um, what am I really passionate about? Um, and then we talk about, okay, like how do you take this big picture idea and fit it onto a cake, um, or a cookie? Um, cause you have to come up with something like, uh, short and memorable, um, which can be challenging with these big complex ideas. And then people, uh, either decorate the cookies or decorate their cakes. Um, and then at the end, um, we walk around and see, um, what everybody else came up with, um, which is my favorite part because, uh, it's just really great to see all the different things that people care about. Um, because, you know, everybody has a different set of things that, um, they're passionate about and want to share with other people. So yeah, I just, I really enjoyed doing those workshops um, and I'm, I'm planning to do more in the future. But in the meantime, I've been doing Instagram lives. In addition to writing messages on cakes, I'm also um, a recipe writer. Um, so people have been um, making, I was like, the first one I did was we made brownies as a group. So people joined the Instagram live um, and I was um, you know, on camera demonstrating the brownie making, um, and then people were also doing them at home. So I call them virtual baking parties. And it's just like this fun community event um, at a time when a lot of people are um, really missing community um, and needing that. So it's, it's really fun to do those um, and have people join the live and show me their brownies that they're working on. Um, there was one little girl that joined um, and she wanted to show everybody her pug dog. Um, oh my so, gosh, that's so cute. Yeah, there's just, um, yeah, things like that that make you feel connected to other people through food um, and uh, made possible by the internet. <laughs> by viewers like you. Yeah, viewers like you and the internet. <laughs> um, how would you, if you could sort of try to explain the process of like reducing your a concept or a message or, you know, a value into a single pithy phrase? What is the, how would yeah. you, how do you Yeah, so you, you have there? to, you have to pull out the part of the concept that is key, like uh, the most important aspect of it. Um, and then condense it down to something that's between three and maybe up to eight words, but you know, that's getting kind of long um, to fit on a cake. It depends on how small um, you can write on it, but it's sort of just a trial and error, um, thing for me. Um, yeah, I, I guess I don't, I don't usually, I don't usually do the workshop exercise. Um, I sort of just, I have a little notebook in the beginning, I had a notebook and I would write down phrases as they came to me. Um, and now I just sort of store them in my head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, so Becca, I've never made a cake. That's okay. How do I, 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 I don't know what to do. Should I make I've a cake? I've made thousands ever? of cakes. Should you make an effort? Yes. It's, it's a cathartic exercise. I mean, I see baking as catharsis a lot of the time. Um, it's something that's, um, something tangible to sort of get you out of your head. Um, so that's part of why I like doing it. Um, and it's satisfying to, you know, make something out of ingredients. Um, but there are so it, many rules. <laughs> there are rules, but I, I think people get kind of afraid with baking because they think that it's really rigid and there are too many rules. And like, there are rules. There are some things that you can't mess up, but there are a lot of things that you could, you know, mess up a little bit and it would be totally fine. So I would say it's worth doing. You don't have to be afraid. Um, and even if it is terrible, you know, you throw it away, you move on, you try again. Easier said than done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have thrown away lots of things before. Um, but most of the time, you know, it works out pretty well. You know, it's interesting because this kind of just made me think like I'm I have a hard time like reading the instructions on not just baking recipes, but any recipe at all. I feel like there's a particular sort of jargon associated with cooking and baking. And as a total novice, like even just like the way that they're like saying like whisk or doodly do like freaks yeah. me out. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> like, and I think that one of the ways that I learn best is through you know, working with someone through hands-on teaching. And that's how I learned astrology. Um, I was so, so, so grateful and I'm so grateful and so lucky to have had worked with my mentors before I even knew that I wanted to be an astrologer. I was like studying with them. If I was trying to study exclusively through books or I don't know, even online workshops, I don't know if I would be able to, I would have been able to retain as much as I was able to retain and learn because I was so hands-on. Um, and then that just made me think of like so many other things. Like I've also never been skiing and I know – Me neither. There you go. And I don't really anticipate ever learning how to ski, but I didn't grow up with a family that knew how to ski. And I feel like a lot of the time in order to do that, it's like you need to sort of be shown how to do it. Um, yeah. And nobody in my family really baked. Um, my grandma – made a few actually I was talking with her while she was at the nursing home just yesterday and we were talking about food and she told me that she was making dinner for my maternal and paternal grandparents who died in 2000 and 2007 respectively the other night so that was a really interesting uh, dinner party she was describing but I was asking what she was making and she was like Lushkin pudding and I was like what the fuck is Lushkin pudding? You've never, like, when did that come to be? And it turns out that my whole life she had made this, like, noodle kugel pudding, this, like, sweet mm -hmm. uh, Jewish dish. And I, she never called it a Yiddish name. But now at 90, it's like she now wants to call it the Yiddish name, Lushkin wow. pudding. So I, like, Googled it and was like, Grandma, are these the right ingredients? Are these the right recipes? And she's like, yes. But I, who knows if it's true or not. <laughs> but I feel like, I don't know. I it's like as an adult, you have to work so hard if you want to learn something, and that sucks. Is the, the moral <laughs> of the story? <laughs> I yeah. don't have an answer. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Like I also learn better um, if I like physically doing it with someone else. 
Um, so that's something that I tried to incorporate into my recipes. And then also, um, like if I'm demonstrating on Instagram live, it's like, okay, now I'm going to show you the bowl and like, this is what it's supposed to look like. Um, I, I think that's really important with people feeling confident about their baking and cooking, um, is just being able to like feel it or see it. Um, and that just takes like time and practice, but someone can tell you like, okay, this is what you're supposed to be feeling. Like those more sensory cues, um, I think are really important. Um, for a good recipe. Yeah. And if you think about like how as kids, like in kindergarten and first grade, like, you know, when we're doing crafts projects at school, like the teacher comes around and gives you a chance to be like, yo, is this right? And then the teacher would be like, no, like, look at, (laughs) look at little Timmy's, you've done it all wrong. So you have like feedback um, of your teacher and of your peers that help sort of gauge whether you're on the right track or not and when you're doing something all alone it's like it's hard to get it's hard to know if you're not just doing it right but like if you're even it's hard to get that validation that feels so good when you do when you are successful in something yeah that's true and that's one of the interesting parts about baking is that if you bake something you're usually sharing it with someone else like Rarely do people um, make a whole batch of cookies and eat them all themselves. Well, um, speak for yourself. Those are the few times that I've baked. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's one of the fun things about baked goods is that, um, you know, getting them to other people and being like, here is a physical manifestation of my affection for you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, So tell us, like, what is next for the Sweet Feminist? What can we... um, what do you have any secret projects that you're working on that you can only tell us and we'll never tell anybody? Yes. So I am in the early stages of working on a cookbook, um, which I'm excited about, you know, personal dream of mine. Um, so yeah, just early stages, not going to be for a while, but, um, I'm really excited about that. Um, and then, you know, I'm going to keep doing workshops, um, whenever it's safe to do so continue doing that. Um, yeah. Amazing. Well, where can we find you? You can find me on Instagram um, at the Sweet Feminist. Um, I also have a Twitter account and a Facebook account, um, but I don't really know how to use those as well. <laughs> um, so I have a website as well. It's the sweetfeminist.com. Um, but Instagram is the best place to connect with me for sure. Do you, oh, last question. Do you do commissions? Yes, I do commissions. Um, I've done them um, for organizations like NARAL and the ACLU and Refinery29. Um, so yeah, that's that's something that I do. All right. Well, this is all very important information. Now we, as all of us independent listeners, are going to go off and think about exactly what we want to say and put on a cake. Yes, that, <laughs> that is your homework for after listening to this episode. All right. Thank you so much, Becca. All right. Thanks. Thanks.